I think it was Brother Evan or Brother Dan, I'm not sure, but I think Brother Evan gave this title, uh, the title of this talk, The Revolution of Simplicity. And I want to thank you for that and for the notes. I, I borrowed greatly from some of the material that you had gathered. If, um, if you want to read a book about the topic that we're going to discuss right now, then I suppose it would be Tolerance, Legalism, and Embodied Holiness. Is that the name of it? Well, I'll just say Tolerance. It's a book called Tolerance. It's back there, right? And uh, it's definitely worth reading if you want a more thorough review of this topic. I was remembering this morning how for several years we had the privilege and opportunity to minister in various teen challenge centers. Is everybody familiar with David Wilkerson's ministry that he started, Teen Challenge? Well, it's kind of morphed and developed through the years and is a little bit different than how he started it, but it's a valiant attempt to answer the drug problem through a methodology that in incorporates um, Christianity and a walk with God. And um, so for several years, we would minister on a regular basis in various Teen Challenge centers around Texas. And I guess there's about a half a dozen of them. One in particular was uh, we focused a, a great deal of attention on. And uh, I always had this feeling we would come trooping in and they call it Teen Challenge, but it's actually not teenagers. It's, it's adults of, of all ages. Um, in this case, it was a, it was a men's Teen Challenge. Um, I always had this feeling like these guys felt sorry for us a little bit. They thought, they were thinking to themselves, look at all these people coming in. They look so different. I wonder if they know that they're different. I wonder if they know just how weird they are. <laughs> and, and I had felt that on more than one occasion. And then one day I felt like I should relieve them of that concern. <laughs> so I stood up and I said, before we get into what we're gonna discuss, I just wanted to make an announcement. We know we're weird. <laughs> and it's intentional. <laughs> just kind of let the pressure off and y'all don't have to worry about us anymore. <laughs> but I think that we were kind of breaking the ice and making fun of, of, of the moment and of the tension. But in truth, conformity is what comes easily. Distinction is what makes a difference and what is so hard. We want to talk about the revolution of simplicity because it can be categorized as simply an unnecessary or insignificant side note to an otherwise fantastic ethic and, and uh, dynamic and community. And I can't tell you how many people at some point or another uh, were, found themselves very interested, intrigued, maybe even enthralled 
by what God was doing in this context, but for whatever reason, they got to this point where they said, I could never dress like that. And to be fair, we do not condemn any Christians. There are many here in this room today who do not subscribe to our viewpoint. And we do not pass any judgment. We treat them as brothers and sisters. But we feel to some extent that we owe you an explanation. Not that we want to browbeat you with our position, but we want to offer an explanation. Because we've seen many people come to this point where they would take another step and then they say, I could never dress like that. Okay, we understand. Lot have said that and then ended up eating those words. <laughs> Y'all keep laughing, I don't know what to say. I want to start with a quote from John Wesley. Do you remember in the Pioneers of Restoration, he and Charles took us a huge leap and step in the right direction. They brought us the reality of repentance. They restored that to the church. This is a quote that he, this is a statement that he made. Quote, I must entreat you in the name of God. Be open to conviction. Whatever prejudices you have contracted from education, custom, or example, divest yourselves of them as far as possible. Be willing to receive light either from God or man. Do not shut your eyes against it. Rather, be glad to see more than you did before, to have the eyes of your understanding opened. Quote, unquote. Amen. And that's the attitude and spirit that we want to approach this topic with and all the topics that we discuss. We have been talking predominantly. Can we turn the temperature a little bit warmer? I know I've been complaining that it's a little cold, but it's mostly humidity. Is it a little cool in here to y'all? We're trying to keep it cool. Um, <laughs> Um, I know that I began the seminar on the pioneers of faith by emphasizing, by speaking from Romans 12, where he says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed with a new perspective by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what God's good and acceptable and perfect will is. We cannot do God's will if we are caught in the forms of the world. If we cannot divorce ourselves and extricate ourselves from those forms, God's will will never make sense. God's will will never be possible. We will never come to know and prove as Christians what God's good and acceptable and perfect will is. Jesus said in John 17, John 7, verse 17, he said, if you are willing to do God's will, then you will know concerning the doctrine, whether it be of man or of God. There has to be a willingness. We have to say, before we discuss something like this, we have to be willing to say, God, 
if this is your will, I want to say ahead of time, I'm willing to change. And if you don't come at it with that willingness as a necessary prerequisite, revelation will never come. Because if you are willing to do God's will, then you will know. First comes willingness, second comes knowledge. In the same way, if you're not already determined to abandon the patterns of the world, then you'll never prove what is the will of God. Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. Amen? So we have to have it in our hearts already that an answer to conviction is never, that would look so weird. We know we're weird and we're okay with that. Just so long as we are being consistent with what our convictions tell us is the will and word of God. So we don't want to be conformed. We want to be transformed. Amen. The idea that simplicity could be revolutionary is really exemplified in one of the least violent, most consequential revolutions in our day. How many of you know about Mahatma Gandhi and the freedom of India from Great Britain? Mahatma Gandhi had a vision to set his people free from imperialism. He was not perfect. He was not a devout Christian, although he was very enthralled with Jesus. He said that Jesus was one of his great influences along with Tolstoy. His favorite song was, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Is that it? Yeah. He used to have his nieces sing that to him. So he was deeply stirred by Christianity. In fact, he was famous for saying, I love your Christ. It is your Christians that I can't stand. <laughs> but we cannot deny that whatever his flaws may have been, he was consequential. He was revolutionary. And he affected a change for his country that the force of arms and militaries could have never hoped to accomplish. How did he do it? One of the main things that he decided was that the British got most of their cotton from India, but then the Indians were dependent on that cotton being made into fabric in textile mills in Britain. He, he saw that they could control and manipulate the people through their dependence on this most essential element, their clothing. And so his revolution was to promote khadi, which simply refers to fabric that is homespun. He popularized the Gandhi spinning wheel, where everybody could have a spinning wheel in their own home. And he promoted changing your dress, simplifying your dress, so that it could become something that could be produced in India. I want to read you a quote. The British Raj was selling very high-cost cloths to Indians. The Khadi movement by Gandhi aimed at boycotting foreign cloth, 
Mahatma Gandhi began promoting the spinning of Kadi for rural self-employment and self-reliance instead of using cloth manufactured industrially in Britain. The freedom struggle revolved around the use of Kadi fabrics and the dumping of foreign-made cloth. The freedom struggle, the Gandhi revolution, revolved around clothes. So simplicity and a change in style or fashion can be revolutionary. When somebody asked him why he wore the simple dress of the, the Indian dhoti, his response was, I am decolonizing my body. How many of us saw what Brother Kevin showed two days ago? especially those pictures toward the end of his presentation of the textile mills in early America and earlier Britain, but then also of the manufacturing of clothes in foreign countries, in third world countries. How many of us saw that and felt troubled in our spirits? Amen. Are we going to live by our convictions? Are we going to live by what we claim is the truth, or are we going to be sucked into something and just be conformed to the patterns of this world? I remember watching a documentary on the Amish. Remember, I want to harken back to the story that Brother Evan began his nonviolence talk with the other day. Remember, he told the story of the the Amish school that was that suffered, the, 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 the gunman came into and, and killed those girls and took his own life and wounded others and how it reached international news, not just for the tragedy, but even more so for the revolutionary response that these people of a revolutionary simple background were able to, to bring to that, that sorrow, that tragedy. They were able to offer forgiveness. They were able to offer surrender. And their attitude toward forgiveness stemmed from their simple lifestyle, from their attitude of being disengaged in the competitive rivalry that marks every aspect of Western culture today, most especially clothes. Amen. But I also want to remind you, or I want to tell you about watching this documentary and this, it tells about how this Amishman is picked up by a tour bus. There's something like a quarter million tourists, or is it more than that? It may be a, more than that. But in this one county, it's at least a quarter million tourists pass through and just gawk at the Amish and admire them. I'm going to be one of them one day. But, um, and they picked up this Amishman, and he got in the tour bus, and he's riding along with the others. And... The tour guide says to him, in a few words, tell us what makes you different from the rest of us. Presumably, the majority of the people in the bus would have been Christians. And the Amishman said, how many of you in this bus believe that television limits the real meaningful time you get to spend with your children? How many of you believe that it fosters bad attitudes and even violence in youth? 
And how many of you believe that it's a danger to culture? And everybody in the bus raised their hand. And he said, how many of you are going to go home and get rid of your television? And nobody on the bus raised their hand. And he said, that's the difference between the Amish and you. What he was saying is, we're not willing to contemplate the devastating consequences of root problems in our culture and then just pretend that we didn't see it. We have a responsibility. Revelation, truth, makes us responsible to act. When Gandhi discovered that the British people couldn't be, and the Indian people couldn't be free from the British Empire because they were dependent, he said, we've got to get rid of this dependence. We've got to become self-reliant and our freedom will, will follow. He did the same thing with their salt. We could talk about that at length, but we won't. The question becomes is, does this make us dependent? Are we going to see something like Brother Kevin showed us and make a radical change? Or are we going to see it and say, man, too bad we can't do something about that? Well, you may be a sympathizer, but you're not a revolutionary. Amen. If you're a revolutionary, if, you're, if you have the passion and the zeal for the kingdom in your heart, you're going to have to say, something needs to change. Something has to be done. And I'm going to take whatever steps I can to make that change. Amen. We've been talking about two kingdoms and two cultures. We know that in the book of Revelations it says that the end times are going to be marked by the fact that men will make merchandise of the bodies and souls of men. So it's going to be a market economy. It's going to be a place where everything is a commodity, including human beings, their hearts, their feelings, their souls, and their bodies. I want to ask you if you take an honest, critical review of what drives the youth in America. Do they not feel like they have to sell themselves to be accepted? When a girl dresses before going out on a date, or when a teenager prepares to go to high school in the morning, do they not feel like they have to be conformed or else they're going to be rejected? And if they are compelled to conform in a certain way, are they not participating in a system that if they're Christians, they're claiming they want to come out of? Are they not dependent on the very mechanism of mimetic rivalry that is inherent in any successful fashion industry? How does fashion work? It's an expression of modern. What does the root of the word modern literally mean? It means just now, always changing. So the nature of a market culture an economic culture that has shifted from this side of the screen to that side, 
from society to big government, the nature of it is economy. But economy relies on fashion, and fashion relies on what's modern, what's new, trending. If somebody walks into a room and it's a ladies' luncheon, and one of the fine ladies says, Oh, so you're wearing that. I had one, but I thought it was so yesteryear. <laughs> Is the individual wearing that inclined to wear it again? We, there is an inherent competition. When they see a new style, whether in television or in a magazine or in a uh, movie star or a pop star, they are driven to change. And these changes represent adjustments in the pattern until the pattern becomes a state of constant change. But what is wrong when the church mirrors this change? What does it say? It says unequivocally that they are completely conformed to the patterns of this world. And if they entertain separating themselves and looking and behaving differently, they say, I can't do that because I depend on that culture for my acceptance. And acceptance is something that is essential in the life of every person, whether Christian or unchristian, especially young people. Even Jesus needed the acceptance. What did the Lord say every time he spoke from heaven about Jesus? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We need acceptance. Acceptance is as old as the competition of Cain and Abel. Remember? Abel offered a sacrifice, and with that sacrifice, God was well pleased. And Cain offered a sacrifice, and God didn't say, I don't like it. He didn't hurt Cain. He didn't rebuke Cain. Cain just didn't feel the acceptance that human beings can't live without. And so he was grumpy. And Christians who only have the world as their source of acceptance, if they attempt to extricate themselves from the systems of fashion, then they are going to feel grumpy too. They're going to feel isolated, excluded, different, odd, weird. And they're not going to be able to stand up and say, we know we're weird and it's on purpose. They're going to feel like they want to hide. We have to have acceptance. The question is, where is it going to come from? Is it going to come from the Father? Are we going to hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Are we going to hear the Father say, you are a beloved son in whom I am well pleased? Are we going to feel the favor of God, which is the grace of God that belongs to the humble? Or are we going to feel that we are accepted because we are indistinct from the world? 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I want to ask you, when the devil wants to destroy the church, what does he do? He finds a prophet. Isn't that what Numbers teaches us? Israel had an enemy. His name was Balak. And he wanted to destroy the people of God. What did he do? He looked for a prophet. It's the same thing Jesus said in John, in Matthew 7, when he said, Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets. Prophets open paths for people. Amen. The spirit of the prophet Elijah prepare the way. Prophets pave roads for people. They point and say, if you walk down that path, you're going to achieve this objective. And Jesus is tacitly tying prophets, whether false or true, to these two roads, broad or narrow. Amen. When the devil wants to destroy the people of God, he looks for a prophet. And what does the prophet do? Step one, find a prophet. What does the prophet do? What did, Balak, what did Balaam do? This money-loving, greedy, rotten, false thing that is called a false prophet throughout the rest of the Bible. What did he do when he got up there? He went up to the cliff to pronounce a curse. He went up on the cliff to ruin the church. To ruin the people of God. And what, what happened when he got up there on the cliff? Somebody, what happened when he got up there? Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come denounce Israel. From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart. Who do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who count the dust of Jacob. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous and may my end be like theirs. Balak says, I want you to ruin the church. And he gets up there, Balaam gets up there and he looks down and he goes, I see a people set apart. I can't pronounce a curse on them because they're not in Babylon. They heard the call that said, come out of her, my people lest you partake of her curses and her plagues. So when the devil wants to ruin the church, he looks for a prophet. And the prophet is successful in his attempt to destroy the church if there is no distinction. 
But where there is distinction, there is separation from judgment. Where there is distance, it's just like when the Titanic is going under. The closer you are to the ship, when it starts to go beneath the water, the more likely you're going to be pulled under in its bore tide. So Christians who want to be as close to the world as possible, they are courting their own destruction. Be separate and you'll escape her plagues. Be separate and you'll avoid her curse. Be separate and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. You'll be my sons and daughters and I'll be your father. Love the world and the things of the world and the protective, preserving love of the Father is not in you. I want you to combine that scripture with Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Your love for the world. That's what. Nobody can ever separate you from the love of God. But your love of the world can drive the love of the Father right out of your heart. If anyone loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Can height or depth, principalities or powers, things present, things to come, angels or any created thing ever separate us from the love of God? No. The whole world can be arrayed against you. And if you seek the approval of men, you are no longer a servant of Christ. But if you love the praises of God rather than the praises of men, nothing can separate you from the love of God. But if you love the praises of men, Paul said, if I am trying, if I have begun to try to please men, I am no longer a servant of Christ. If you want to incur the pleasure of the world, the pleasure of men, you cannot receive the acceptance and the pleasure of God. So take something as peripheral as dress and let's just ask ourselves, does it matter to God? Does God care about it at all? Does he? I believe all Christians would say he did. I believe all Christians at some point would draw a line. There would be some place where they would say that doesn't honor God. Can we agree with that? I don't know where that line would be. Because that line is always moving. In fact, the line would have been drawn in a different place 10 years ago than it is drawn this morning. And the line would have been drawn in a very different place 50 years ago than it is drawn this morning. And even more, 100 years ago. Who's moving the line? Who is moving the line? Because the line represents the boundary of the kingdom. I want you to tell me, is the kingdom gaining more territory? Or is the world encroaching and moving the boundary and stealing the kingdom? Who's moving the line? I know a spirit of wisdom and revelation and anointing came on the church and they said, you know what? Let's give up holiness. After these tongues and prophecies, I think it's time. Let's give up holiness. Is that what happened? 
Is that how it works? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I want to read you a quote. This is from D.A. Carson. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. D.A. Carson, pay all the more earnest heed to the things you have heard, lest you drift away, he says in Hebrews 2. This has been a slow fade. This has been a gradual drift. This has not been by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Something has changed radically, but it has not been at the instigation of God. Would you tolerate it if I read you some opinions about dress from the early centuries? Would you promise on your solemn word that you will not hold me guilty of whatever they're about to say? <laughs> solemn word? I, I gotta hear you now, will you? Okay, this is not, I'm not necessarily agreeing with this, but I want to give you an insight into the fact that modesty and simplicity in clothing is one of the last things the church gave up. But it is one of the most glaring absences today. If you were to take an evangelical 22-year-old from church on a Sunday morning and march her into the home of an average Baptist family in the 1900s, they would hyperventilate with astonishment. And I ask you, is that line moving by God or by someone else? So this is a man by the name of Cyprian of Carthage. He was born in the year 200. And he was a leading minister who helped the Carthaginians survive the Cyprian uh, plague, a horrible disease. He was known in his former noble life, Roman life, as loving to wear gold and purple and to dress in the most extravagant manner. And he said in his words, God freed me from having to dress like that and freed me to wear nothing, wear only the simple garments of a cotton tunic, etc., etc., cloak and such. But this is what he said about dressing. <laughs> Do I need to get waivers? <laughs> if you brought rotten tomatoes, please give them to the kitchen. We have a disposal system. This is a Christian pastor, pastor writing in the 200s. This was considered mainstream in his day, as I will show you over and over again. Quote, I hold that not only virgins and widows 
but also wives and all women without exception should be admonished that no wise should they deface God's work and fabric, the clay that he has fashioned with the aid of pigments, yellow, black powders, rouge, or by applying any dye that alters their natural features. They lay hands on God when they strive to reform what he has formed. This is an assault on the divine handiwork, a distortion of the truth. Thou shalt not be able to see God, having no longer the eyes that God made, but those which the devil has unmade. I'm going to end right there because I think tomatoes would fly if I finished. Something changed. Here is another church leader a hundred years later, in the, between 340 and 397. This is a church leader in his day. The body should be bedecked naturally and without affection, but with simplicity, with neglect rather than nicety, not with costly and dazzling apparel, but with ordinary clothes, so that nothing be lacking to honesty and necessity, yet nothing be added to increase its beauty. Three hundreds. Here's one before 200. It's a man in the one hundreds, Christian minister. Luxurious clothing that cannot conceal the shape of the body is no more a covering. For such clothing, falling close to the body, takes its form more easily. As a result, the whole make of the body is visible to spectators, although they cannot see the body itself. Here's another Christian minister who was influential in uh, writing the, putting the New Testament in Latin, in the Vulgate, and compiling the Vulgate. Very, very influential minister, Jerome. Here's what he said. Either we must speak as we dress or else dress as we speak. Why do we profess one thing and display another? The tongue talks of chastity, but the whole body reveals impurity. Something has changed. Something has changed. And what has changed? We have entered into an economic system that we believe is controlled by the gods and powers of this age and not by Christ. We can identify the captivity of a teenager held in the grip and need to receive the, the approval of her peers. We can say that is not just fashion, that is bondage. But at what point do we draw the line? At what point do we abandon and come out of this whole system? Does the New Testament teach that clothing matters to God? I can't hear anybody. Yes. Does it in fact? Before we get into some of those scriptures, how about this one? 2 Corinthians 11. I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband. Remember what Brother Dan ministered to us about jealousy and, and zeal. 
I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Simplicity, when simplicity is being lost in the church, it should provoke jealousy in the hearts of God's leaders to say something is being corrupted and the purity of the bride is being tarnished. This simplicity can mean singleness of vision, the opposite of duplicity. What, what are we talking about? Well, we're either serving one master and hating the other with our actions, or we're serving the other and hating the former with our actions. We cannot serve God and man. We cannot reach a middle ground that uh, 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 incurs the acceptance of God and the approval of man. Is this what Jesus taught? What did he say? That which is highly esteemed by man is what? Is an abomination to God. We cannot receive the approval of the world and the church at the same time. We cannot receive the approval of the world and Christ at the same time. And never is this more apparent than today. We are either scorning and making a mockery of our betrothal to our future husband, the Lord Jesus, or we are distancing ourselves and scorning our covenant with the world. We're going to have the love and approval of the world, or we're going to have the love and approval of the Father. But they are mutually exclusive. Simplicity is often primarily seen as something negative, the negation of something, the cutting away of something, merely a do or a don't. But the examples we're giving, either of the Amish or of Gandhi, show that simplicity can be revolutionary because it extricates you from a system that you're dependent on. And if you're no longer dependent on it, then you're free from it. Dependency is at the core of slavery. How many of you remember the story of that Holocaust survivor? What was her name? And she talked about how, she said, in the marches to and fro from Auschwitz, it was in the freezing conditions of winter with insufficient shoes, with insufficient clothing, in rags, really. And they're being marched in these convoys. And her friends and she discovered that it was possible to slip out of the ranks. But they were in such a wasteland, such a frigid, hostile, natural environment, that the Nazis counted on the fact that they would stay with the predictable rhythms of slavery rather than risk the privations of freedom. And she told about how people would leave the convoy and they would go hide somewhere in a barn. But then in the evening, they would get back in the convoy because they had no place to go. 
And I feel like that's how Christians are. We know that we're in lockstep obedience to the world and we know it's headed in the wrong direction. And there are times when we make up our minds and we say, that was a powerful word from God. I'm going to make a change. And we get to the barn. But we're alone there. And so in the evening, we're back in the convoy doing what we said we'd never do again. But we want to tell you, you're not alone. God is putting together a community of the called out people. God is giving a revitalization and a unity to those who want, want the love of the Father more than the praises of men and the love of the world. If we can do this together, we can do this all the way. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. There are three stages to every religious history, to the history of every great religious movement. Proclaiming the word and believing it and practicing it as a transcendent priority to all other concerns. Second, beginning to self-contradict by acting in a way that does not align with the words we once espoused. Third, the process of assimilation by which a religion is, becomes invisible, insignificant, and non-existent. We can opt out of the consumer culture. We can vote with our actions. We can say no to the system of ungodliness that makes merchandise of the bodies and souls of men. We can be different. We can be free. The church is going to tell you that fashionable dress is relevant, is necessary to stay relevant in reaching the world. How's that working? <laughs> 66% of young people are leaving the church. How's that working? You remember the statistics or do I need to read them again? See, I've got all my messages in this book so I can go and read anything anybody's forgotten. I got time if you do. Do you remember the statistics? It's not working. It's a delusion. What's the fastest growing religion in the world? Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. If somebody could just tell them that if they would be a little more lax with their dress code, everything would be much more attractive. It's baloney that a religion can't succeed with a stark distinction. I'm certainly not recommending Islam. That's ridiculous. But I'm saying their radical approach to dress doesn't seem to be ruining their numbers any. It's just a big delusion that the devil has sold to the church because they, he really knows that what the church is most afraid of more than anything is to be different. Balak said, if you can just get some of these ladies to go over there from that culture, we'll just start making a confusion. Amen. And then the same judgments, Balaam said this, the same judgments that belong to these people, they're going to belong to the people of God. If we say that the reason 
we have to dress worldly is because we won't be attractive to the world in outreach otherwise, then what are we saying? We're saying that we are commodities and that we're not sellable enough. We're saying that Christ and his love and his sacrifice and his power and his redemption is not strong enough to win people to him. But here in the 21st century, we've discovered that Christians have to sell themselves to be more attractive. What a delusion. Studies in the 21st century show that in terms of percentage and worldwide spread, Islam is the fastest growing major religion in the world. God is asking us to be holy, to be separate, and by standard, by, by comparison, the church is asking, God is asking nothing of the church compared to what Islam asks of it, its adherents. And yet it doesn't seem to hurt its growth, does it? George, Barna, George Bernard Shaw, excuse me, said that hell is that place where we must do what we've been made to think we want to do. If we have raised our children, cultivated our own minds for the acceptance of the world, making ourselves believe that what we need and want is the approval of the world. One day we're going to get it, but it's going to be to the exclusion of God. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody's going to say, this is legalism. One simple response would be, shut your mouth. But to be slightly more elaborative, <laughs> somebody's going to say, this is legalism. I, I don't like that argument because it's so ignorant. I want to ask you a couple questions about legalism, externalism, okay? Is the law a reality in everybody's life that lives here in America? And for the most part, if you don't commit a crime, you don't feel the law, right? It's only in transgression that you really feel the law. But there are some other places where you do feel it. What month is this? Oh, yeah, it's April. Two days ago was April 15th, a sacred holiday in America. You feel legalism, you feel the law around April 15th. Because they come to those who have worked hard for themselves and they say, it's time for you to give some of that to me. We got to keep this system running. And the Lord commands it, so we do. That's legalism. You don't do it, you're going to be punished. How many of you, when you're filling out your taxes, said, you know what? I've always given 15%, but I just feel like I'm going to give 16% this year. <laughs> Legalism tells you the least you have to do. Love inspires you to the most you can do. People who see radical effects in a Christian's life and say that must be legalism are delusional. That's the nicest thing I can think to say. 
which has a more powerful effect for change on your life? A legal requirement or the inspiration of love? When you fall in love with someone, are you measuring, out in, measuring your love out in percentages? Are you saying, I need to have at least one dinner a week with her? Huh? Is it defined by the minimum requirements? Or does it saturate every aspect of your being? Does it animate all your thoughts and actions? Does it bring a glow of enthusiasm and excitement to every moment? Love, when you fall in love with someone, it makes you conscious of the way you're dressing, doesn't it? It makes you conscious of the way you comb your hair or don't. It makes you conscious of your tone of voice, not just your words. Love is a powerful force to utterly transform a person. Legalism is a minimal, minimum requirement force that doesn't change anybody. Now, I know that legalism can manifest itself as externalism. I know that. But just because a Christian's faith and infatuation with God ramifies to be visible on the outside does not mean that's legalism. And we have been duped if we think that. In fact, it's just a catch-all phrase for dismissing what we're afraid might convict us. Amen. Christians who measure out what they have to do for God in percentages, they are the worst kind of legalist. Better a legalist who tries to give 80% than a legalist who gives only 5 Somebody who says all you have to do is just confess Jesus as your personal Savior. As soon as they say the word, all you have to do, they're a legalist. Hmm? Legalist. God is a harsh taskmaster and you're trying to give him the least you have to do. Isn't that the attitude of the wicked and lazy servant? I knew you were a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed and, and I was afraid. And, and so I just hid it because I wanted to give back what, what you gave me. And the minimal participating, the Christian who participates on the least level is the most legalistic. The man who said, no kidding, he just put five talents in my hand. I'm going to turn this into ten. He loved his master and he received the pleasure of God. Don't let anybody cheat you out of your love for God by calling passion legalism. It's delusional. Sure, what the Muslims do is legalism. And you know it. There's no life, spontaneity, heart in it. Sure, what the Hasidic do is legalism. We can accept that. They're like people who think they've got to pay 100% tax. Bless their hearts. Amen? But the people who we're supposed to be are those who, for the love of God, for the joy over it, sell everything we have. Legalism tells you you don't have to sell anything. The pearl is yours even though it's not. Just believe and repeat it over and over. Love and joy, for joy over it, says give up everything. 
and become what God is calling you to be. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What are some of the changes that have taken place in the church regarding dress in Western culture? Somebody. Amen. Do they have to get dressed first? I guess anymore, you see people in their pajamas in Walmart, so I guess not. They can sit at home and watch it on their computer now, then. That's right. Yeah, that's true. What are some of the changes, though? I, I, let's just imagine this for just a minute. I want you to picture a. I want you to picture a devout, but not fanatical, Methodist lady in 1910. She's going to church. What does she look like? I can't hear you. Is she wearing a long dress, skirt? This lady said her hair would be up. Amen. Now I want you to fast forward. I want you to imagine a Methodist lady going to church this Sunday. Is there a distinct change that has taken place? And did those changes come through the Holy Spirit? Where did they come from? It's true. It actually is true. When was the first time that women started wearing pants in America? The very first time was in the 50s, but it didn't take root. And who was it in the 50s that started wearing pants? Mm, no, no. It was a radical feminist by the name of Amelia Bloomer. She invented something that became named after her. A radical feminist by the name of Amelia Bloomer, who was the first woman to promote women's suffrage through her publication of her own magazine that was exclusively for women. And she actually tried it for a few years and really promoted it and then gave it up and went back to wearing dresses and said that it was no longer necessary. <laughs> Nobody else got the memo. Did it matter to these people? Why did they do it? Judith, Dr. Judith Butler, a militant feminist and lesbian, influential professor at John Hopkins University and University of California, Berkeley, says the following. Butler demands a complete eradication of all differentiation between genders and advocates deliberate, quote, cross-dressing and a transition counter-strategy to overthrow the moral restraint of Judeo-Christian culture. Shelley Foote, I don't know if you say that, foot or foot, but <clears throat> she's a feminist, feminist specialist at the National Museum of American History. And here's what she says. She 
She says, half a century ago, the idea that women should wear such a garment as trousers sparked criticism across the country, blurring the visual lines between the sexes. She's promoting this as a good thing. Mrs. Bloomer's opponents felt this might lead to radical changes in relationships between men and women. The New York Post said that no clergy at the time concurred with Mrs. Bloomer's move. No clergy, quote unquote. Well, give them some time, you know. The church is only about two paces behind the world, and pretty soon they'll be promoting it as a religious doctrine. Why do you feel like this lady, this feminist, this radical feminist, says that people thought that Mrs. Bloomer's actions were going to blur the, the visual lines between the sexes? I mean, we know that hasn't happened. How stupid were they? Those clergymen, they were just crazy. A century later, Foote goes on, quote, when young men let their hair grow long as part of their overall rebellion against the status quo, critics expressed the same concern. Oh, brother, here we go again. Many people saw long hair on men, a change in appearance as symbolic or a precursor to a social change. But we know that didn't happen. <laughs> Foote says, today we have difficulty understanding the shock that greeted the first trousered women. But in the 1850s, they appeared to most as ludicrous, similar to how men in skirts appeared in the 1980s, quote unquote. This is a radical feminist who supports it. But she wants it because she wants to blur the lines. The whole premise of this kind of, I'm trying to choose a nice word, but it's not coming, maniacal feminism. Um, the whole premise is that men are the only standard for goodness and perfection and esteem in the world. And therefore, women are only compared against how they measure up and match a man. I think that's horribly demeaning because I think a woman is beautiful and wonderful and important in the economy of God in her own right as a woman. The feminists have per perpetrated a great trick on people in getting them, ironically, to choose masculinity as the only standard of esteem. I think that's very unfeminine. We should have them converted by other feminists. <laughs> only after World War I were they gradually accepted and only after World War II were they fully embraced. Why? Because all the men were overseas in the war and somebody, Rosie the Riveter, had to step into those shoes, right? Amen. It was a change in the whole order of the family. It was not insignificant. So do we judge people? No. Most of our extended family and friends. And, but if we're trying to come out of this culture, if we're trying to separate ourselves from the underlying dynamics 
that have been fueled by agendas that we do not subscribe to, then we better stop being conformed to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed. Cultural anthropologist and professor Penny Storm says the following, the global cataclysm of World War II caused millions of women to be thrown into the industrial workforce. It was another contraction in American culture. She goes on, quote, female factory workers in World War II put the final stamp of acceptance on female trousers. So it was this system, not only of, of mass production and the industrial revolution, but it was war, violence, that led to this change. She says, this new look became popularized by Hollywood beginning in the 30s and flourishing into the 40s promoted across the world. She says further, women moved from biblical patterns of keepers of, of the home to factory workers and quote, Rosie the Riveters. Bless Rosie's heart, I don't know if she knew the impact she was gonna have. Have I lost anybody here? Penny Storm says dress, <laughs> this is, powerful quote. She says, dress is a quote, universal common to every culture because quote, it is one of the most powerful mediums of expression ever devised. Now this lady does not subscribe to our view of dress, but she says it is a universal common to every culture and it is one of the most powerful mediums, mediums of expression ever devised. Can we agree that dress expresses culture? The most common function of dress is communication, according to Storm, and not function. The primary reason we dress the way we do is to communicate a certain message, though often subconscious. Dress is a way of communicating to which groups we belong and to what allegiance we subscribe. No separation between dress and morals. They go hand in hand. But the Apostle Paul also said that we were supposed to express something, didn't he? He said, you are letters read and known of all men. So the question that God asks us is, what does your letter say? What does your appearance say? If the inside of the cup has been cleaned, Jesus said the outside will be also. You can have a clean dress and not a clean heart, but you can't have a clean heart without a changed appearance. Clean the inside. Change your heart. Change where you get your acceptance. Change who you love and where you get your love. And your whole life is going to change. Don't be ashamed of him. Don't be embarrassed of him. Amen. He won't be embarrassed of you when he comes with the Father and his holy angels. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The Apostle Paul to Timothy writes, I want women to be modest in their appearance. Does the New Testament care about clothing and dress and appearance? I want women to be modest in their appearance. 
They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. The significance and respect and honor appropriate to a godly woman is diminished when she succeeds in selling herself by the way she looks instead of receiving respect for what she does. Isn't it ironic that feminism that would purport those virtues has in fact succeeded in accomplishing the exact opposite? First, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and perfect holiness in the fear of God. Amen. I want to ask you, are the fashions and models and styles of the world today, do they represent defilement of the flesh? Did they come not from the mind of Christ but from the debauchery of man, from the filth of sin, from the man of sin being released in revolts and rebellions such as radical feminism. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. What does the word sanctification mean? Set apart. You can't be set apart. You're not going to see the Lord. You can't see the Lord unless you have a pure heart. But it's that double-minded heart that causes you to seek the attraction of one lover and the attraction of another. But if you would purify your hearts, you double-minded, then the Lord would receive you, as He says. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Paul says, I want you to be sanctified in body, soul, and spirit. Sanctified completely in body, soul, and spirit. God cares about the sanctification of the flesh. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to express something. Because that's what these professors and anthropologists and all of our experience and the history of Christianity shows us. We're going to express something with our clothes. Have you ever gone, have you ever seen someone like an Amish or a Mennonite or a godly Christian family who dressed differently from the world and said, I'm just, they don't really express anything with their clothes. Is that your response when you see someone who dresses differently? Someone who dresses modestly or simply. It's just, they don't really express anything. What do they express? Well, to those who are in love with the world, they express that they're too legalistic. But to those who are in love with Christ, they express that person is definitely a Christian. And to others, they say, I wonder if she's Christian or not. Our letters are supposed to be read and known. Not read and unknown, read and known. 
I want to close with another quote from John Wesley. <clears throat> Do everything herein with a single eye, and this will direct you in every circumstance. Let a single intention to please God prescribe both what, what clothing you should buy and the manner wherein it shall be made and how you shall put it on and wear it. To express the same thing, in other words, let all you do in this respect be done so that you may offer it to God a sacrifice acceptable through Jesus Christ. God's calling us to a revolution. A revolution that is an exodus. A revolution whereby we decolonize our bodies. Because the real colonialists are the gods of this world. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And they have a colony called fashion, and we'd like to opt out. They have a competition called appearance, and we'd like to vote with our choices and opt out. They have a kingdom not of this world, and we'd like to opt out. They have a message that they communicate, and what is that message? That I'm available, that I'm for sale, that I'm attractive according to my sexuality or desirability. We'd like to opt out. We'd like to be respected for what we do and for the Lord we profess as our master and not for the way we look.